text of emphasis today is found in the book of Acts and the chapter 17, and we'll be starting with verse 16. You guys doing okay? Are we warming up a little bit? Well, thank you again, Lassier, for being here and helping us to, uh, to have a good time worshiping together. We're uh, really excited that you are here with us. Again, our text of emphasis, Acts chapter 17, and starting with verse 16, and it says uh, this there. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him, and some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, uh, he seems to be abdicating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Arpagus, where they said to him, May we know what he, this new teaching is that uh, you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what, that, what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting in the Arpagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out and appointed the times and histories the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps react, reach out to find him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. For in him we live, move, and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think of the divine being as like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man that he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Apargus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, as we consider this story and uh, we come to you now uh, praying for understanding about uh, who you are and what you're calling us to be as people. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you uh, have been around Avent Hope at all, you know that uh, over this uh, winter period, we have been in the midst of our teaching series on the book of Acts. And last week, uh, Sarah King, Sarah's here today. Sarah, if you can just wave to us. Sarah, share with us a really great uh, message from a number of chapters earlier in the passage If you, uh, in, the, in the book of Acts. If you want to get caught up with her message, which I did, on Sabbath afternoon, I, was, I anxiously was awaiting the download, and it came, and I listened right away Sabbath afternoon. You too can do this at avenhope.org, where you can watch a video or audio and get caught up with all the messages. So Sarah, thank you for the great job last week, and if you haven't listened to it, you can go and listen to that. All the others, Jael, a couple weeks before, it's been a great, great time together. So we're continuing this uh, this series by jumping a number of texts into the uh, future, actually a few years in the future. Uh, Sarah talked to us about Saul, who became Paul. Now we're looking at a few years in the future in chapter 17, and we find that he got into some trouble uh, with uh, those who were uh, of his uh, religious background and was actually having to escape the area of Berea, and he ends up being escorted to Athens where he is awaiting the arrival of his colleagues, Silas and Timothy. And so he arrives in the city, and apparently he walks the city. Now, one of my favorite things to do when I go to a new city is to just walk around. And there's nothing better than going to a new city and just uh, walking around the city. Now, I got in trouble once doing this with, with my wife. Um, I've told you some of, this, some of this story, so bear with me because I love sharing how much trouble I get into. So I went to San Diego a couple of years ago and, um, for a, 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 a program, the One, one Project, right? La Sierra, you guys know the One Project, right? We, had the, we celebrated the last one in San Diego this, this last year. Well, I know, love nothing more than just walking around a city. So the first One Project in San Diego, I got there, and all I did all day was walk around the city. Now, what I hadn't told my wife was that I, I was there a, a couple days early before the, the program actually started, because I, I wanted to arrive on Friday. Anyway, so I'm walking the city, and so in the morning, I get on FaceTime, and I'm out. At the it's, Of course, it's like 12 degrees uh, in New York, and it's like 80 degrees in, in San Diego, and so I FaceTime with my wife, and I'm there in the harbor in San Diego, and it's beautiful, and it's like 8 a.m., so she doesn't think anything about it. It was the second FaceTime call, call on the top of the hill around 1 o'clock. What's, what's the park on the top of the, in San Diego? You know what I'm talking about? Balboa. And I'm in the beautiful buildings, and there's the sun, and I FaceTime her again, and she asks me, aren't you supposed to be in meetings? <laughs> that, was, that was my mistake. It was the FaceTime the second time. Anyway, now I confess every time, hey, I'm going to go and walk around the city when I go somewhere. So um, anyway, I love to go walk around the city. So I'm imagining Paul gets to Athens and he walks around the city and much to his dismay, uh, he finds all of these idols. Now, Athens holds a special place in the heart of the resident of Rome uh, because it's, it's from the, the Greeks and, and from Athens, which they got many of their their uh, political views and their ways to do government and so on. And so Athens actually had a special relationship with Rome in that they were able to continue as a free-ruling city even though they were part of the Roman Empire. And so Paul, as a, as a Jew, 
and as a Roman, city, a Roman citizen, certainly had a love for Athens, as any Roman citizen would, but also an abhorrence to idols. And so he is really, really disturbed about this fact that everywhere he goes, he sees these uh, idols. And so, uh, as was his uh, tradition, apparently, he just couldn't contain himself and starts to go and talk about uh, Jesus in the city. So first he goes to the synagogue, um, and he has debates there, and then he goes just to the marketplace, and he's basically talking to anyone who will listen to him, and he runs into some uh, philosophers, as one would do in the first century in Athens. And these, uh, in particular, were Epicurean and Stoic uh, philosophers. So just a little bit of background here. So Epicurus, who was alive around the third century B.C., he held that the, the goal of life was really rooted in pleasure, the little pleasures, not, not wild pleasure, but the little pleasures of life, and that uh, in order for one to, to live healthily, they really needed to focus on a living with pleasure in life, and that living with pleasure would help one overcome uh, pain and passion and fear and anxiety and death. And so ultimate meaning really lied in uh, seeking a pleasure. This was the teaching of Epicurus. So around the same time in the, the third century BC, there was also a man named Zeno, who is the uh, founder of Stoicism. And Stoicism had a different perspective on the meaning of, of life and what was most important. And that was that one should live with self-control. One should live with self-control. And so in Stoicism, the idea of being self-controlled is of utmost importance. And we find our meaning as humans as being self-controlled. And so you have these kind of two competing philosophies. And so Paul shows up with this, this, this other thing. And they're both kind of intrigued because they're both a little bit in, in contrast to each other as uh, having this sense that it's either self-control or pleasure that is really the root and meaning of uh, life. And so, uh, with this in mind, I think uh, we probably can relate to this issue of the self-control versus uh, pleasure of being a, a philosophy that we might resonate with uh, today. The, the, the reality is that uh, both of these philosophies has con have continued uh, into our uh, day. Uh, we need to live uh, self-controlled lives. This is something that you probably said uh, to yourself at times. Uh, but we also need to take pleasure in the, in the little things. We, need to, we should have joy and we should have pleasure in our experience as well. Certainly that's a very contemporary uh, philosophy. And so self-control uh, versus pleasure as being of ultimate uh, purpose and ultimate value is something that we can relate to uh, very well. The problem is that achieving either of these is innately uh, difficult. Uh, achieving real true joy or real true uh, pleasure or being really self-controlled, both of these are really, really uh, challenging. Uh, why? Well, I have a couple suggestions for you. First of all, uh, self-control is just innately, innately not part of, uh, of who we are. I mean, if you, Darwin, I bet Darwin and Husek could come and talk about self-control. You know, when you're a child, you have to, to, to learn self-control, right? It's not something that you just innately have. In fact, uh, uh, children don't have a lot of self-control. 
A lot of adults don't have a lot of self-control. It's not something that is innate to who we are. We struggle with the fact that we do not innately have a lot of self-control. And so the idea of self-control being of ultimate purpose really, really is challenging because it's not something that we innately uh, have. Uh, self-control is, is elusive also because we are tired. Is there anyone here who is tired? How many of you are tired right now? So tired. I should just stop talking and we should just have... I love that my... I walked by this the other day. My friend on 7th Avenue has opened, I'm not kidding you, a, a nap center. <laughs> you, can, you, can go to, you can go to his nap center and you pay money, I'm not kidding, and you go in and you take a nap. And you can, who wants to do that right now? <laughs> I feel, Kyle, I feel like there's a market for us here at Avon Hope. Some people consider this time the nap center, ironically. <laughs> We're going to have to talk to him. He needs to come and tell us about his nap center. What's that? It is. It's true. I doubt, well, that's a good point, yeah. Uh, depends on what your rent is, I guess. Um, anyway, nap center. We're tired, and when you're tired, we know when you're tired, you don't have a lot of self-control. One of my, my favorite books of all time is uh, by the research of Will Baumeister. You guys have heard me say this a million times. The book is called Willpower. And basically, in Baumeister's research, he, he indicated that having self-control, having willpower is deeply re, uh, related to our physiology. When we are tired, when we are hungry, when our blood sugar is low, we just don't have great uh, self-control. And so uh, self-control is ultimate purpose. Wow. Self-control is elusive to us because we are uh, tired. Uh, finally, when it comes to this issue of self-control being elu uh, elusive, uh, the problem is that we are increasingly bombarded with things that are intentionally designed to challenge our ability to have self-control. I mean, there are, are professionals who are sitting not too far from uh, where we're worshiping today, and their sole job is to help us not have self-control and to buy things that they want us to have. You guys know what I'm talking about? And so we are bombarded with messages telling us not to have self-control, to just get this, and your life is going to be transformed and changed if you just buy the soap. Has anyone really been transformed or changed by soap? I guess soap is actually a bad example. I feel like soap is a good thing. It's a good... <laughs> Some of you need to be transformed by soap. No, that's... I don't... Boo. Well, you, you know it's not going well when they boo during the... Okay. Soap, soap. Um, we're bombarded with messages that are intentionally designed for us not to have self-control. And so self-control as ultimate purpose, that's a really tricky one. But uh, pleasure is, is right up there also being really, really challenging, you know. Um, pleasure is elusive. Uh, part of that is because our sensor for what pleasure really is is kind of messed up. I am reading, it's, it's my, like my favorite book of the year, and you're, you're going to laugh at this. It's called Reality is Broken. Why games, yes, why games make us better and how they can change the world. So this is written by sociologist Jane McGonigal, and uh, so many good things in this that I'm going to share with you at some other point. But here, here's a quote, and this is relating to our 
sense of pleasure or sense of joy being messed up. Uh, she says, this is a quote, psychologists use the experience, the experience sampling method, or ESM, to find out how we really feel during our, uh, our parts of the day. Subjects who are, are, are participating in ESM are interrupted at random intervals with a pager or by text message and asked to report two pieces of information, what they're doing and how they feel. Uh, one of the most common findings of ESM research is that what we think is fun or pleasurable is actually mildly depressing. <laughs> what we think is fun is actually mildly depressing. Virtually every activity that we would describe as, quote, relaxing or fun, watching television, eating chocolate, window shopping, or just chilling out, doesn't make us feel better. In fact, we consistently report feeling worse afterward than when we started uh, this having fun. We feel less motivated, less confident, less engaged overall. Now, McGonagall gets to the point where she says what really brings joy and, and, and fun is, is, is work that's meaningful, is doing something that has meaning. That's what really brings joy and, and, and pleasure. So, but the reality is we, we think things are going to be fun, and then we end up afterwards being like, ah, even though we try to talk ourselves into that was great, oftentimes it, it's just it's not as good as we anticipated it to be, and that's because our, 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 our radar, our sensor for what is pleasurable, what is fun, is not always that uh, great. Uh, we also find that uh, seeking pleasure for ple pleasure's sake is actually not that rewarding, right? If, if your goal is to have just pleasure, oftentimes that just doesn't work because seeking pleasure for ple pleasure's sake doesn't really work, and we think of the, 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 the great author Solomon in Ecclesiastes who wrestled with this very fact. He says in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verse 1, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. And uh, I think we can all relate. Sometimes when we put all of our eggs in the basket of finding a pleasure, that amazing vacation we're going to have or this experience that we're going to have, um, if it's just pleasure for pleasure's sake, that often just doesn't uh, do it for us. So our pleasure sensor is, me is messed up, but seeking pleasure for ple pleasure's sake just doesn't... How many times am I going to say pleasure? I'm realizing that's a tongue twister. Yeah. Um, seeking pleasure for pleasure's sake often doesn't really turn out that uh, great. And then finally, when you are all in on pleasure being of ultimate purpose, you end up having a lot of fear. Because if everything's on having uh, pleasure, and, and you're going to be afraid of anything that's going to inhinge or, or impinge on experiencing pleasure, right? If you're on the beach 24 hours a day and your life is rooted on the beach, what happens when the beach is... Uh, infringed on by global warming and there's no more beach or uh, what happens when, when you're the thing that you uh, put most value in is threatened. And so if pleasure for pleasure's sake and that's an ultimate goal, you're always going to live in fear that that pleasure is going to be lost or taken, taken away. And so pleasure for pleasure's sake doesn't really do it either. So pleasure is elusive and of self-control is elusive. And so this leaves us with the question, well, well, where do we go? I mean, here are these two 
monumental philosophies and philosophies that we relate with. I mean, self-control is good, pleasure is good, but if they are not providing ultimate purpose, then what hope do we have? Where do we go from here? Uh, by the way, I should, should just mention that as a, as a side note, that these, this issue of, of pleasure versus self-control has a really uh, intimate connection also with uh, church life, with Christian church life. You know, one of the, two of the great errors of the, of the Christian age are two Christian philosophies, one being legalism and the other being a license. We've talked about this a lot before, these two kind of elements of the, of the religious experience, but particularly a Christian experience. Legalism is the idea that, hey, all you have to do to, uh, to, to have ultimate purpose is just get it together, get your life together. And so we come to church and we an- anticipate that we're going to hear a message with the five things on uh, five ways you can have a better life. And then we take notes and we go home and we're like, all I have to do is do these five things. I need to pray more. I need to read the Bible more. I need to eat better. I need to dress more, more properly or whatever your list is. And you go home and you do these things for like three hours and then it doesn't work out somehow, and then you're more depressed than when you started. This is legalism, the idea that you're just going to get it together on your own and that all we need is more information. And if we get the information, the right information, and we implement that, implement, implement that information, then everything is going to be okay. But that doesn't work for us. So that's legalism. The opposite side is license, and that is, hey, it doesn't really matter. You can see, this is, this is the philosophy. The Stoicism and the Epicureanism, this... Uh, this legalism and uh, license. Self-control. All we need is self-control. If we're just more self-controlled, we're going to find ultimate purpose. No, 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 no. Just focus on leisure. Just do what makes you feel good, what makes you feel right, and that's what's, you're, where you're going to find ultimate purpose. It's the, same, it's the same argument. And so as Christians, you know, Adventist. I mean, if we're on, many of you are Adventists. We're in an Adventist uh, community here. We've struggled, right, with the legalism uh, issue. Adventists love a little legalism, don't we? Can we be honest with ourselves? We love a little legalism. Boy, if we just do these uh, things, if we just read these things and implement these things, everything is going to be okay, but it doesn't work. And so then oftentimes the opposite of that is, well, legalism didn't work. Let's go with license. It really doesn't matter. But neither of those are really satisfactory. Neither of those really give us a purpose. And so this issue of self-control uh, uh, versus, versus leisure, it's an old, old issue. And so what, what hope do we, we have if neither of these really give us ultimate purpose? Well, we look to, uh, to Luke chapter 10 and verse 21, and we find uh, these words. Uh, At that time, Jesus was full of joy. I like this passage just because of that. Jesus was full of joy. You know, so many of the pictures of Jesus that we have, I think, in our mind are of this man who is just eternally kind of sad, right? I mean, he's, he's always, he was always sad because he, you know, certainly his life had purpose, and that purpose was, was uh, you know, had sad elements uh, to it. He was going to die. He was going to come and die. But in Luke chapter 10 and verse 21, Jesus was full of joy. Isn't that a great, great picture of Jesus? He's full of joy through the Holy Spirit. And he said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. You can almost hear him like laughing as he says that. This is just joy. He's full of joy. 
Um, in John chapter 4 and verse 31, I like this one because it's related to food. His disciples urge him, Rabbi, you got to eat something. But he said to them, hey, I've had food to eat that you don't know anything about. And then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? And he says, my food, my, my joy, my good food. By the way, last year, have you had some good pizza yet? I know you've only been here since how long? Thursday, Wednesday? I hope, Randy, did you get good pizza for everybody? Okay, good pizza, that's joy. Eat that pizza. Mmm, mmm. I have pizza, said Jesus, that you know nothing about. It's a picture of Jesus who had uh, a joy. He, he, he had joy. He had a pleasure, if you will. But Jesus was also self-controlled. I mean, we're told in Luke chapter 23 and verse 34 that he is dying on the cross, right? And he has enough self-control to say, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. It's a man who had self-control. We know just a few hours earlier he's being beaten, he's being struck, and he didn't say a word against those people who were striking. This is a man who had self-control. He had, he had joy, but he also had a self-control. Jesus is a beautiful example of having both of these elements, joy and self-control. But Jesus as an example is not enough for us, quite frankly. Because I'm, I, I mean, that's great if Jesus is an example, and I wish that we could all be more, more like Jesus. I wish I could be more like Jesus. But if just being more like Jesus was the answer to everything, we are doomed because we're not very good at being like Jesus. Even if you've been coming here to worship at Advent Hope for 30 years, you being like Jesus, it's not, it's not working. So thank God, though, what Jesus is to us is not just a great example. And so we read the Apostle Paul, the same apostle who was debating with these uh, philosophers in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 20, these words, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man... The resurrection of the dead came also through a man, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Jesus' death and resurrection opens the door for true meaning in life. Because the... Yeah, th yeah thank you, Rebecca. Yes. <laughs> you, you caught me off guard. Yeah. I didn't expect anyone to actually agree with that. Why? No. Of course we agree with that. Hey, this is good news. God has done something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. He didn't give, just give Jesus an example and say, go and follow this really great man, this really great philosopher. Jesus did something for us. When he died and when he came back to life, that meant that we have hope for a future that transcends our own ability to have self-control. Thank God for that, right? Your self-control is not going to do it for you. Your ability to find good pleasure is not going to do it for you. It's not going to provide ultimate purpose. The good news of the gospel is that ultimate purpose comes from a God who works on our behalf and who has done for us what we cannot do. And this is the most dramatic of things. Someone died and then came back to life. Nobody has figured out how to do that. It's never, been, it's never been done before. Now, this is actually a great challenge for our age when we want to see things proven to us. This, this is not proven. None of you have seen anyone died, come back to life. Now, maybe someone, someone dies for a few minutes or for a few hours, and then they come back to life, but that's, 
usually a very short time, or they die again. They die again because that's what happens. 1 Corinthians says, no, that's not how it works. The, the resurrection of Jesus is a resurrection for all time. Died parts of three days, was dead, and came back to life. Now, remember the story of Acts chapter 17. This was the issue that changed the story for Paul talking to these philosophers. So t- Paul is going on. I mean, I read it to you. It was very wordy. He had this articulation, you know, and he was talking about creation and how uh, the uh, humanity is created by God. And you know those philosophers, they sat there and they listened to that and they were totally fine with that. But as soon as, as Paul mentioned the resurrection of Jesus, that's when they got up and said, this is foolishness. And that's the, the truth today. The resurrection is the deal for those who are Christians, right? There is a lot of good teaching in Christianity. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of good philosophy. There's a lot of good ethics in Christianity. But quite frankly, the ethics and the great teaching of Christianity isn't all that different than some of the great other philosophers of human history. I mean, there's, there's some amazing, amazing ethical teaching in all of the religions, of the, or many of the religions of the world. But this issue of resurrection, <laughs> that, that Jesus died and he was dead for parts of three days and then came back to life, that is a whole different thing. That's a whole different thing, and it requires a whole different way of thinking because suddenly we're not able to rely on our ability to determine whether this can happen or not. Nobody is going to be able to, you're not going to be able to, to observe this happening. It just requires believing that this is capable, that God is able to do what we cannot. And it's a stretch. We've got to be honest. This is a challenging stretch. Someone who was dead came back to life. The resurrection of Jesus was the turning point in that dialogue with those uh, people that that Paul was talking with in Athens. And it's a turning point for us too because it requires us to have faith, to believe in something that is quite frankly outlandish. It's outlandish. Before the resurrection, everything is ethics. How to, how, to, how to behave, how to have self-control. But the resurrection says, hey, self-control isn't enough, and you're not, you don't have enough self-control anyway. God has done something that we cannot do. He brings back people who are dead. Now, one of the critiques of those uh, who, who believe in resurrection or believe in afterlife is that, well, hey, if you believe in the resurrection or you believe in the afterlife of some sort, well, um, and you're always looking for something that's going to come in the future, then uh, you're actually not going to be a great person here and now, right? Because you're so focused on what's to happen in the future or the life to come that you, you, the danger is that you might not invest in your life here and uh, now. And this is where the idea of resurrection in the Christian understanding is really, really uh, beautiful. In Romans chapter uh, 8 and verse 11, we read these words. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of this spirit who lives in you. Uh, This is Paul again. What he's saying is, look, the resurrection... The resurrection is not just something for a future time. It's not just about an afterlife, and it's not just about the time when you 
die and that there's hope that you'll come back to life. Resurrection power is something that those who believe experience here and now. So it has a real impact, not just on the future, but it should have an impact on our lives right now. So, so the argument that, hey, resurrection, it could, it, it, you, you won't value the life that you have now or you will take for granted this world, it, it shouldn't apply. Because Paul says resurrection life isn't just something that happens in the future. Resurrection life is for us now. That we should, if you embrace God's work on your behalf, you should start experiencing resurrection happening in you now. He goes on in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us reconciliation. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's good news. Resurrection isn't just for the future. Resurrection is for now. This issue of God being able to make that which is dead alive again is relevant for you and me sitting here and now because some of you feel really dead. I know that. Some of you are feeling really incredibly dead inside and you need new life, and you're trying to be self-controlled, or you're trying to find pleasure somehow, and it just isn't working. But the message of the gospel is that resurrection is for you here and now today. And so if you're feeling dead today, and you've been trying to figure it out by being really self-controlled and getting your act together, or you, you feel like, well, I just need to, to be happier, and I need to do things that are pleasurable— I'm going to tell you, it's not going to work. Those things are not going to work for you ultimately because they, they will not bring ultimate peace and ultimate meeting. The promise of the gospel is that God brings peace and he's done it by his work, by bringing Jesus back from the dead. He let him be in that grave for three days, parts of three days, and then he brought him back to life. And the promise is, as we embrace that, God is able to start to bring us back to life too. And so if you're at a place in your experience where you just are not feeling alive, there's good news. God's resurrection power is available to you today. May we be people of the resurrection. Amen.